good afternoon. It's so great to see you all today. I know there's some other event going on today, some minor thing of football that's going on. Not even the proper football, but uh, we know the real football is soccer. Um, Well, we're going to be in the book of Obadiah. It's so great if you're visiting with us today. So glad you're here. We've been going through the minor prophets and The Minor Prophets are not named that uh, because they're unimportant, but because they're short in their length. And we will be in the shortest one today. And I didn't do that on purpose because of the Super Bowl. It just happened to be that way. So we're going to be in the book of Obadiah. And as you turn to the book of Obadiah, it might be a little difficult to find. It is that short, uh, one or two pages in your Bible. Uh, I want to kind of bring up something that I was struck by this week as I was reviewing the notes. The prophets in the Old Testament, though we see them as very important because their words were recorded in Scripture in the Old Testament, they didn't have any power politically to speak. So the kings, the priesthood, they had political power, they had religious power, and so when they spoke, they had the ability to enforce what they were speaking. The king through military consequences, the priesthood through uh, religious consequences. But the prophets, really all they could do is plead with the people. They didn't have any authority to enforce the scriptures that they were speaking. And I find that striking, especially as we're reading the Minor prophets, and we heard Amos last time and how much judgment was coming upon all of the nations around Israel and then finally upon Israel itself. It it very much is a word from God that says judgment is coming but has to be believed by faith that it's coming because there would be no earthly reason to think that judgment was coming. And now Obadiah Uh, We'll read this here in a moment, but Obadiah is judgment on a pagan nation. In fact, it's the only book in the Bible written to a foreign nation, to Edom, the descendants of Esau, which were cousins to Israel, but they had separated at the time when Jacob and Esau separated. And Edom, uh, the nation of Edom, ended up taking the high mountains up in the hills and becoming the ones who lived up there uh, nearby to Israel, a neighbor of Israel. But the book of Obadiah is not written to the people of Israel. It's written to the people of Edom. And so that's kind of fascinating because you have God appealing through Obadiah to a pagan nation to repent. Really, he's telling them that judgment is coming because of how they've treated his people. And so there is a sense of encouragement to Israel that God is the God of justice. And we get echoes of this in the book of Revelation when you hear the saints under the altar crying out, How long, O Lord, until you bring justice on the earth? And all of us long for this sense of justice. In in one sense we do. We want there to be righteousness and justice. We're, we're tired of the corruption that's in our government. We're tired of the, the corruption that's in our legal system. We lament or we get cynical. I mean, I've grown up my whole life in California. I've not ever felt like 
justice was something that was ever going to happen, and so why even be involved? Just get cynical. And yet we long for it, don't we? And yet that we're, we're a bit uh, uh, two-minded when it comes to this because we want God to bring justice, but we don't want Him to bring justice upon us. And that's the good news of the Gospel, is that God is both the just, the righteous one, and the justifier, the one who declares people righteous in Christ. And so our, our, our schizophrenia, as it were, of wanting justice to come and yet not wanting justice to fall on us is satisfied in Jesus. Because the Father made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Well, the book of Obadiah, it fits in between Amos and Jonah. And if we take a, a step back and think about the book of Amos last time, two weeks ago, it was judgment upon the nations, but even Israel's not exempt. Now the book of Obadiah is judgment on a pagan nation for how they treated Israel. But then the book of Jonah is the nice bookend because it's mercy on a pagan nation. Nineveh repents. And so God relents. And the one who's angry is Jonah. But that's for next week. All the other prophets speak to Old Testament believers, but Obadiah proclaims a vision from the sovereign God to a pagan nation. They don't have any theology. They don't have any place for the knowledge of God in their lives. They make no claim to knowing God. In other words, God is speaking through Obadiah to a place, a society much like our own that has no theology, no place for the knowledge of God in their lives and no claim to knowing God. Now, Obadiah himself, his name means worshiper of Yahweh or servant of Yahweh. But we don't know anything else about him. We don't exactly know when this is written. I, I would think in my studies looking at it that it was written sometime shortly after the fall of Israel in Babylon, but before Edom is conquered by Babylon, which puts it somewhere in the 500s B.C. And the reason I say that is because Edom took advantage of Israel and Judah when they were fleeing the destruction of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and then they took advantage of their Israeli cousins and plundered them. And so God is saying, don't you think that in your pride you're going to survive this? Edom is an enemy of God. Well, let's read the book together, and then I'll, I'll explain some few things and make some application the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up. Let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged. His treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. 
Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Taman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord is spoken. And those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zareth. Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Wow, that is um, strong language. Judgment. Edom is an enemy of God, and we see in the first four verses that they were proud. We heard this in James, didn't we? That to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. And that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the response here should be that they humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. But Edom does not do this. In fact, God promises to make Edom small among the nations in verse 2. They thought of themselves highly. Their geography was high on the top of a mountain where the eagles lived. And in fact, that illustration God uses to say, I'm going to tear you down from that high place. Your geography is a representation of your heart. You're high and lifted up in your heart. You're proud. You're lofty. But I'm going to make you small. The pride of your heart has deceived you, he says in verse 3. You make your home on the heights and you think, who can bring me down? And when, you remember in Indiana Jones, uh, The Last Crusade, that um, when um, they're going in towards the end and there's that, that, um, those buildings, Petra, that are carved into the rocks in the mountains, that's Edom. That's the location of Edom. 
They were way up high in these mountains and they had the ability with their army to defend themselves against anybody with a very small army and thought nobody can conquer us. And God says, I'm going to tear you down from your heights. And that's what the Babylonians did to them in the 500s. Now, Edom was also an important trade route between Syria and Egypt, so it made them wealthy. So they had this secure fortress on the top of the hills. They were an important trade route between Syria and Egypt. They were 5,000 feet above sea level. And they thought, we've got a great spot. We're secure. And what God says, it doesn't matter how strong or prosperous or successful you feel, you're going to give account to Him. And He's your only security. Not your own possessions, not your own fortresses not your own security their pride deluded them verse 4 though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars from there i will bring you down and then what obadiah does is he lists out the sources of their pride verses 3 and 4 we saw it already their location they're high up in the mountains they're at an elevation uh, the mountaintops were considered uh, prime real estate, is today too. I mean, we here in California, the coastline, but the mountains as well. There's a reason the Oakland Hills are more prized than Oakland proper. Because the, the hillside, the mountain, you have the better view. God says, I'm going to bring you down. Their wealth, verses 5 and 6, and God says, your treasuries are going to be searched out and looted. Their allies in verse 7 that they prided themselves on, their allies were going to deceive them. They were known in history for flip-flopping all the time and making deals with all the nations around them. But their allies were Tyre and Sidon, these two famous, powerful uh, countries that had wealth because of their ports and shipping and being part of this trade route. And he says, your allies are going to deceive you in verse 7. Verse 8, their wisdom... God says your wise men are going to be destroyed. You know that one of Job's counselors was from Edom. So they prided themselves evidently on their wisdom and their knowledge. And God says, oh, I'm going to destroy the wise men and the counselors among you. And their mighty men, their armies, verse 9, they're going to be destroyed, God says. They're going to be dismayed and, and slaughtered. God opposes the proud but He gives grace to the humble. Now, why would it be that way? Why would God do this? Well, this is keeping in the character of God. It's not just that, that God is simply doing this out of capriciousness or out of some sort of spite or retaliation. It's in keeping with His character. He's a holy God who can't abide sin. He dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. And so in keeping with His holiness, He must judge sin. And so Edom will be judged for her great sin. But it's also keeping with God's own humility. What do I mean by that? Humility is the way of God Himself. Philippians 2. Jesus, the eternal Son of God prior to the Incarnation, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and used for his own advantage. But instead he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And God highly exalted him and has given him the name above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. The incarnation is the heart of God, the example of God's own humility. God the Son demonstrates that it is God-like to be humble. Isn't that incredible to think about? God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And then think of Jesus when He's on the earth. He, what does He do? He washes His disciples' feet because He wants to point to an even greater cleansing in the new covenant when the Spirit comes who is going to wash us by regeneration to be born again so that we would be with God forever. This is the heart of Jesus as He goes to the cross. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark 10.45 Humility is the way of Christ. So it must be for all Christians. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17 says God hates the proud. He's opposed to the proud. And isn't pride such a temptation? Man, I think of, <laughs> I think of so many times in my life when I've been proud. Proud of my accomplishments, proud of what I've done. And then it just seems like I'm blocked at every opportunity. And I remember God opposes the proud. But He gives grace to the humble. John Stott, the famous theologian, in his, uh, had, has written on, on humility at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship. Pride is our greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. And this is what we learn from the book of Obadiah. God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. James 4 was a excellent appropriate parallel chapter to go with the book of Obadiah because it says there that to be a friend with the world is to be at enmity with God and and the example of being a friend of the world is to to be filled with pride why because when we're a friend of the world we think that the world has all of the solutions to our life and our problems whether it's money or prestige or reputation or security or comfort we're finding all of it in the world rather than in God and God opposes us it makes us his enemy and Edom here is an enemy of God they opposed God's people verses 5 to 16 verse 5 if thieves came to you would they not steal only enough for themselves in other words Neither robbers nor grape pickers take everything. They leave some things behind. They only take what they need and maybe a little bit more, but Edom has been merciless in her treatment of Israel, Jacob, her cousin. And think about that for a moment. If you've ever been the victim of robbery, you've probably felt those strange thoughts of vulnerability and anger and violation that gets experienced. I've only had minor things stolen, but even then it feels like a violation. I've never had someone break into my home. And yet Edom was, as Israel is fleeing the destruction of Babylon, 
or Assyria, whatever circumstance it is, and they're running up the hills this trade route to escape, and they're going through Edom, then the Edomites are just picking them there and taking whatever remains. That's what was going on. And God here says, Edom, when you've done that to my people, you're doing that to me. Reminds me what Jesus said on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? The Lord Jesus so identifying with His people that He refers to Him as Himself. God demonstrates a similar kind of identification with His people in the book of Obadiah. Actions against God's people are actions against God Himself. That should bring us great comfort in the midst of our suffering the midst of living in this world where people take advantage of us, mistreat us. They're making themselves an enemy of God. And in verse 8, their cleverness doesn't save them, the wise men. And verse 9, their strength doesn't save them. They're, they're mighty men. And the reason it's so offensive, verse 10, is because the violence is done to your brother Jacob. It wasn't merely strangers. It's your own brother Jacob. Your cousin. And God says, I'm not going to temporarily destroy them as I said to Israel I would. I'm going to destroy you forever. See, God cares how His people are treated. And that should bring us great comfort. That though the world be against us, God is for us. Sometimes we mistake God's patience and His kindness for weakness and inaction. We don't see God working in our lives and we see evil prevailing and we we want to accuse God. God, why aren't You doing something? Why aren't You taking care of this problem? I'm suffering. I have a, a person at work, a boss who's mistreating me and slandering me and maligning me. I had a boss stealing my work and claiming it as his own when I was at the oil refinery. And I was tempted, I was crying out to God, God, why don't you vindicate me? And so when we get the curtain pulled back in the book of Obadiah, and we see God tell His enemies, oh, judgment's coming. You've mistreated My people. Judgment is coming, and when it comes, it's thorough. That's a consolation to us. That's why Paul says in the book of Romans, vengeance is the Lord. He will repay. We don't have to take vengeance. God will repay. This is the message of the book of Revelation as well. The Lord Jesus is coming back. And justice will be served. Righteousness will cover the earth. And so we don't have to take those matters into our own hand. We entrust ourselves to the Lord. And when we cry out, How long, O Lord? He says, Yet a little while. And when we understand the purposes of God, we see that the reason He's delayed is not because He's weak, not because He's asleep at the wheel, not because He's inactive, but rather He desires that none would perish, but all would come to Him. It's because of His mercy and His kindness that there's those who haven't yet turned to Jesus that He wants them to come. He has His sheep. And the Lord Jesus is the Good Shepherd who calls out His sheep. 
And He's put us here to, to give this message. Why, why wasn't immediate heaven done in the first coming of Jesus? We can do everything else better in heaven. We can worship better. We can serve better. We can love one another better. I would never offend you in the glorified body. I probably do offend you now. Because I can be a jerk at times and say dumb things. Why do we live in this already not yet? We don't have all the answers. But we know one reason. is because God has people out of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue that are His. And He's calling them out and He's using us. And He has us here to be on mission to share that good news. Back to book of Obadiah. Verses 11-14. to Obadiah is explaining Edom's violence against Israel. Verse 11, they stood aloof. What does that mean? They didn't step in when the violence of others hit Israel. They just stood aloof. They were bystanders. They watched it happen. They were the ones who today would have their cameras and film it for YouTube and post it up, but not intervene. Verse 12, they rejoiced in the day of Israel's ruin. They were actively gloating and rejoicing in the fact that Israel was torn down. Verse 13, they joined in with the destroyers, exploiting Judah's weakness. Looting his wealth in the day of his calamity. Verse 14, they had total disregard for the life of the Israelite people who were fleeing. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. Edom waiting at these crossroads that were in their country for those who fled. And when they found survivors, they handed them over to their killers. The invaders wouldn't have known the local roads, but the Edomites did. And they guided the invaders right to the miserable people who were fleeing. Wretched. Now, remember, this isn't a fairy tale. This isn't just a a story. This is a real attack and a real siege and a real fall of Jerusalem and real people running from Jerusalem screaming. And it was the very roads of Edom reached after an exhausting flight. Roads leading to the Israelites' only hope for survival and their cousins, the Edomites, waited and ambushed and pounced, hoping to get in good with Babylon. And God says, verse 15, I'm going to bring justice. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. Another mention of the day of the Lord. We heard this in Joel. This day of the Lord's judgment is coming where He brings salvation to His people and judgment upon His enemies. And this day is coming. This is a day which is promised over and over in Scripture. And in verse 15, this is a a truism, isn't it? Think about what God says here. As you have done, it shall be done to you. You reap what you sow. There's consequences. And your deeds will return on your own head. Again, a promise that God's judgment is real. Now for again, those of us who are Christians, this should encourage us. 
this promise of divine justice when we personally face unjust suffering, when we hear of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world being persecuted, it's a reminder that it won't be forever. Also, it should change our expectations about this world. The world will hate us and oppose us because it hated and opposed Jesus. Suffering and persecution was the way of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, he leaves us this example that we would follow in his footsteps of suffering. Edom represents the enemy of God. And it's the enemy of God's people there to Israel, but it's a a picture of the enemy of God's people in all generations. This world power against God. And the ultimate destiny is destruction. God is opposed to such enemies. No mountain is high enough. No fortress is strong enough. No military force is large enough. And no hiding place is dark enough to secure such an enemy from the judgment of God. This is what we see here. Jesus says, in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, verse 2. But again, this this book is for Edom. So how do we as followers of Jesus hear these words? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus, come to Christ. Don't mistake the, the weakness, the kindness of God for weakness and think that He'll never judge you. He will. Judgment day's coming. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus and you're a follower of Him, this word of judgment is not for you. This is a word of consolation. That God is on your side. And He will make everything right. We heard it in Joel. He'll restore the years the locusts have eaten. He'll make all things right. And that's what the the book ends with. Uh, Verses 17-21, to you see God's children are His friends. Verse 17, but in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape. And it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The rest of this little book is about the reality that God's children are God's friends. Edom is the great enemy of God pictured. Verse 15 is seen as all the nations, but God's children are His friends. Jesus, He, he says this same thing in Matthew 10 when He says, If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. In other words, Obadiah is teaching us that God is the judge of all who are proud. All who oppose God's people. God is a friend to His people. He cares for His people. You remember what Peter says? Cast all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. And I love the super literal Greek. It matters to Him about you. He cares for you. It matters to God about you. So cast all your cares upon Him. Verse 17, what does He do for His people? He delivers them. Those who escape, and the mountain will be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. He makes holy, set apart this mountain. He fulfills His promises. And then in verses 19 and 20, He says He gives security and blessing. Those of the Negev shall possess 
Mount Esau. Those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. So on and so forth. Verse 20, the exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land. And they'll possess the cities. In other words, God keeps His promises amidst this word of judgment against Edom, God is speaking words of hope for His people. Not only will the wicked receive justice, but God's people will be restored. As if God were promising to bring them back to life from the dead. Imagine such a promise. He mentions verse 18, the house of Joseph. Out of all the houses, he mentions the house of Joseph. And in one sense, these promises were fulfilled when several of the Israelites returned from exile in Babylon to the land of Judah. That's later. But the author also seems to perceive that this resurrected kingdom will include all of God's people. Because he says the house of Joseph. The house of Joseph was part of the northern kingdom that had been dispersed under the Assyrian conquest. And what Obadiah is alluding to is not the experience ultimately that Ezra and Nehemiah saw where the southern kingdom, Judah, was restored, but this restoration when God's people are in God's place under God's rule through the Lord Jesus Christ. This Messiah who's to come. The kingdom, he says in verse 21, will be Yahweh's. So this is what Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God says, my kingdom's coming. And all of my promises are going to be fulfilled. And I'm going to restore my people and I'm going to judge the enemies. What a blessing we have. When we see God's redemptive plan work out and we're on this side of the cross and we see that the way God initiates this restoration is He sends His own Son to be our Savior. And in the first coming of Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, what do we get? We get deliverance. We get a promise of an inheritance in Him that He's going to give us a home and we're going to be part of His kingdom. We get justice. We get His Word given to us. We we experience His steadfast, covenant-keeping love. And as God's people in His church, we've begun to experience all of these blessings in Christ Jesus. Obadiah was promising this. In passing, as as Obadiah is preaching against Edom, he in passing is making application to God's people and saying, you're going to be restored and you're going to be holy and you're going to be secure and the kingdom is going to belong to Yahweh. So who is God in verse 21? The kingdom will be Yahweh's. Well, we've already seen in the minor prophets that the Lord is king over all the nations, not just Israel. He's the creator God. He's God over all. He's the one who made the heavens and the earth. So it's His salvation, His justice is not just in Israel, but it's over the whole earth. God's kingship is the message in this little book. The kingdom is going to be the Lord's. The kingdom is not going to be Edom's. 
It's not even going to be Israel's. It's definitely not going to be Babylon's. They're not even mentioned by name. The kingdom is going to be Yahweh's, the Lord's. Polytheism will be removed. Yahweh alone as God will prevail in this kingdom. What's remarkable, uh, let's turn over to Isaiah 63, another prophet in the Old Testament. And again, we don't know if um, Obadiah wrote before or after Isaiah, but there's another reference to Edom here in Isaiah 63. I want to show this to you. Verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. So who is this coming from Edom whose garments are red? It's Yahweh, the one who's mighty to save. Verse 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples. No one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Wow. That's graphic. This picture of a wine press. I lived in the Napa Valley for a number of years, and there's Crusher Bob on the hill, right, when you're going into the Napa Valley. And Jen's, uh, uh, she went to Vintage High, and the Vintage Crushers is the name. And so you get this picture of the grapes that are in this, this wine crush. And, of course, the old way to do it was you stood in it and just trampled on them and crushed them until the grapes were mush. And God says, this is what I've done in Edom. There was no one to do it, so I did it. And what it does is it brings judgment, but it also brings salvation. Salvation for my people. This is why Isaiah in verse 7, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all the Lord has granted to us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that He has granted them according to His compassion, according to the abundance of His steadfast love. Now the book of Revelation picks up this same imagery. Revelation 11. Is it 11? Did I get it right? I did not get it right. I have 11 written down. Where's the grapes of wrath? The wine press. Huh? 14, thank you. 11 is a good verse. 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That's why I had it written down, is because the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord. But Revelation chapter 14, verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. 
And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Wow. Graphic, this picture of God's judgment upon the nations. Uh, turn back to Revelation eleven fifteen. just since you're right there. This is what I wanted to get to. This is why I, I had this verse written down here. Is because right now the kingdoms of the world rejoice thinking they're so powerful. But God opposes the proud. And He gives grace to the humble And what's going to happen. Verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ and He shall reign forever and ever. This is the end of the story. Edom, of course, was destroyed in history. It was invaded in the next century uh, and then it suffered wave after wave of invasion in history until the nation finally disappeared. And the only thing there today are military outposts in the modern country of Jordan. That's it. And were the Israelites restored? Well, partially. Obadiah promises a future day when uh, there's going to be a restoration of Jerusalem of Judah and when Jesus Christ came and declared that the kingdom of God had begun it's here he ushered many Jewish people and non-Jewish people into God's kingdom over their lives his reign over their lives and we know that this day is coming when Jesus is returning again and the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ this is good news I've alluded to it twice second Peter Chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, be, should reach repentance. This is the heart of our God. It's why He hasn't come yet. He desires all should reach repentance. And so we have a great mission. It should bring us great comfort in the midst of this mission. That God is for us. Greater is He who's in you than he who's in the world. So when you read the news today, when you hear all of the unsettling things, when you're down the, the rabbit hole of Twitter on all the speculations of how bad things are going to get, remember God is ruling and reigning. And His kingdom is coming. And this world, the kingdom of this world will be no more. It doesn't get the last word. Edom was a powerhouse and it's been reduced to nothing. And God promised it beforehand. And He keeps His promises. Again, this should not 
cause us to fear, but this should give us great comfort that who is the one who's for us? The one who made us. The one who changes the hearts of kings and rulers. The one who is king of heaven and earth. The one who does everything he pleases. And no one controls him because he's sovereign over all. He's sovereign over your life and my life. He's sovereign over the circumstances. And He never forgets His people. He never forgets. He's not lazy. He's not forgetful. He's not asleep at the wheel. He is concerned for you and for me. And so your circumstances, they're not on the throne. Your suffering is not on the throne. This world government is not on the throne. It thinks it is. Jesus is on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. And He's going to come again and make all things right. That's the hope we see in the book of Obadiah. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word this time. What a Word. Father, I would never preach it if it was my own decision to just skip over passages. And yet it's some of the most comforting words we could hear that You are going to bring justice that You are going to make things right, that You are for Your people, that You are opposed to the proud, but You give grace to the humble. May the applications of this passage sink deep into our hearts so that when we are troubled, when we are overwhelmed by our circumstances, we run to You. We trust your omnipotent hand, your mighty hand to save. In Jesus' name, amen.